Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Max. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Welcome into Fireside Chats, Episode 3. I am your host, Michael Kist. And man, we got a doozy for you today. There is an analytics company called Edge Analytics, that's EDJ, that only the Eagles used last year on their path to becoming Super Bowl champions. And I had the extreme pleasure of sitting down with the Chief Innovation Officer and Co-Founder of Edge Analytics and Edge Sports, Frank Frigo, to talk with him about what his company does that guided the Eagles in some of their decision-making throughout the season. You will not want to miss this. So let's not tease it any longer. Here we go. Fireside Chats, Episode 3. All right, and joining us today, special guest, you guys are going to love it, Chief Innovation Officer and Co-Founder of Edge Analytics, also the Chief Business Officer at Edge Sports, Frank Frigo. Frank, man, I can't wait to dig into all this stuff. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, thanks. Looking forward to it. So first, Frank, I'd like to get into the history of how Edge was founded or uh, where the idea came from, because from what I've read, you have a background in things like machine learning and turn-based games like Backgammon, which I've heard you're quite good at. How did like all of that ultimately turn into guiding decision-making in football at the level that your company is doing it now? Yeah, so I, I do have a background in competitive game playing, specifically Backgammon. I've, I've been playing on the tournament circuit for actually a few decades. Uh, Spent quite a bit of time in the commodity world and in trading and and originating and structuring uh, energy transactions, risk management decisions, and so forth. But really the sort of the birth of the idea of what ended up becoming Edge Analytics and ended up becoming the Edge football product, one of the original partners, Chuck Bauer, who's a PhD cosmic ray physicist at Indiana University has done research. He and I, he's also a backgammon player. We would be at tournaments and have a lot of conversations about different science-related topics. And we were both keenly aware of some of the successes that have taken place in the modeling, particularly around neural nets in strategy games. So you know, we're at a stage today where the best bot is superior to the best human at really every skill-based game. I mean, famously, more recently with the game of Go and uh, Alpha Alpha Zero and Alpha Go, crushing the best human players. But going back a number of years, really more than a decade, this backgammon was one of the first games that was tackled by artificial intelligence successfully. Mm. And we were aware of that. We had actually begun to start using those tools 
to improve our own play because you can't use them while the game is going on right. while you're playing in a tournament and recognize that there's a lot of similarities in the way certain situations are analyzed that are applicable to football. So we got curious about the decision-making of coaches, particularly around risk management decisions like fourth downs and kickoffs and PATs. And we thought they were probably being a bit uh, risk averse, mm -hmm. but we didn't really have any objective data. So it was just a labor of love. We built a simulation model and started testing some of this. And it turned out we, we realized that they were actually worse at making these kinds of decisions than we originally thought. And that got us really curious. So we started digging into it more and more. And eventually, you know, the, the product evolved and then we found applications. Some folks in the media got interested in it. And uh, we started talking to a bunch of teams and provided some consulting services to different teams and felt like there was really going to be a shift in the way people made these kind of decisions. I mean, we had the smoking gun. Here was the proof. I mean, some different academics had talked about it in the past, but we really had built a tool that could test at a deep level these kinds of decisions and do it very accurately. So that got us pretty excited. To fast forward a bit, taking those ideas in football, we now have a much more robust tool that we could apply to things like roster valuation. But we also took these ideas into other areas and started to examine data that was being collected in other industries and how it applies to decision-making. So, you know, in addition to edge sports, we, we mentioned edge analytics, you know, we do work in healthcare, we do work in education, we do build, have built fully algorithmic trading models. So there's a whole host of applications for new data that's being collected and studying that data and helping uh, folks make better decisions with it. Did you have, because you talked about getting into the into the football world and talking with teams, was there maybe a, uh, a coach or, or something like that that was a bit of um, a, a guiding hand for you guys in the football world that you worked with a lot that got you to this point? I would say one of the earliest people that we talked to and spent a lot of time with was Jim Schwartz when he was a defensive coordinator at Tennessee. Mm. That, that shows you how far back that is. And he was really, really intrigued and wanted to know a lot about what we did. And, you know, he knew that he had prospects of being a head coach someday. So he was one of the early ones that we had talked to. There were certainly a few others. Um, you know, we did spend quite a bit of time with New England. We had, you know, looked at their two-point conversion charts and sat down and discussed with them some of their decisions from the Super Bowls and so forth. So there were there were some some different folks that were very intrigued by what we were doing that encouraged us um, and and wanted us to, to share it. We were more interested, of course, in productizing what we were doing at some point, um, which is kind of you know how we've gotten to where we are today. Is Jim Schwartz as intense um, in person in that setting as he is uh, on the field on Sundays? You know, uh, it's been a while since I've, uh, I've I've spoken to him. He's not sort of the lead person at, at Philly anymore that we we deal with. They have a, they have a pretty sophisticated analytics staff, nice. but. You know, no, I didn't sense that at the, you know, again, going back a number of years, I, no, I mean, I, I felt like there was quite a bit of an open-mindedness to, uh, to what we were up to and, and a curiosity. You, you go into these meetings with, with these NFL teams and some of these, some of these teams, these GMs and coaches are known to be a bit traditionalist, uh, maybe to their own detriment. How do you get them to, 
open up and start to listen to what you're trying to bring them as far as, as far as from a value proposition standpoint without stepping on their toes too much and kind of turning them off? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it is a, it, it can be a challenge. So I think getting in the door and sharing our ideas isn't particularly difficult. Everybody's kind of curious and, and willing to hear what's going on, the latest technology. The real challenge is to get them to bring it into their workflow and actually implement it. And I think the key there is that we're not walking in the door to replace an existing process necessarily. We're just trying to empower them to make better decisions. So if they're already making the effort to hire analysts and and build an analytics staff, why wouldn't you want to have the very best Mm -hmm. tools? I mean, the analysts shouldn't be afraid of that. The GM shouldn't be afraid of that. We think it's a very good value proposition to have us come in and allow your analysts to, to have the best information to benchmark the decisions and to work with. I mean, if you've got, you know, we have a group of data scientists here. We want to make sure they have the best available tools to do their job. And I think the same should hold true in, in any organization. So that's really our approach is that, um, you know, we're not there to kind of rock their world. What we're really trying to do is help them translate what they do better. So if they're they're a scout and they're assessing a player's ability versus another player's ability, that's an art that um, and, and a lot of wisdom that they've developed over many years. We're just trying to help them translate that into a more meaningful metric. What does it mean to make those those roster changes and how does that affect your win probability over the course of the season? Similarly, when we look at play calling decisions, you know, there's a lot of decisions in a game where by feel somebody might be able to get it right, but we can contextualize right. it. We can say, you know, how much did it actually impact wins and how does that compare to another decision that you might be making? So we like to, to say often that we break the game down into a common currency of GWC game winning chance to, to allow the user of our tools to look at multiple facets of the game and compare them fairly in terms of how they're really impacting the bottom line, which is how do you get maximum wins for a finite spend? And that's what we're trying to help them. So with the Eagles and talking about that game winning chance uh, metric, how it impacts decision making, where did you see the biggest change in behavior from the Eagles in 2017 when it came to dealing with this new information? Yeah, I think with the Eagles, the the thing that's really special about them is they have a very sophisticated, very smart group of folks in their analytics team. They've got a very innovative owner and a GM, and they've got a a head coach who's an extremely open-minded person. So that all comes together in almost this perfect storm that allows them to look at new ideas, analyze them fairly, have the best tools, and then be able to implement those on the field without reservation, you know, without apology. I mean, they're not concerned about whether something works or doesn't in the short term. They're, they're in it to win it over the long haul. And I think that everybody's on board with that decision. So what you really saw with them is that they had a lot of confidence this year in their decision making. By knowing what your viable options are on fourth downs, it affects what you do leading up to that. And understanding that, and that really can kind of open up your playbook. And I think, you know, they get a lot of incremental value out of, you know, having a better idea of what the right critical call decisions are, because they know then that gives them more confidence leading up 
to those decision points. They also don't necessarily hesitate. I mean, they, they may have a, you know, when they run the Philly special, they might certainly have had some different ideas about what play they wanted to call. But I don't think directionally in that situation, there was any doubt in their minds they were going for it. They knew that was mathematically sound. It was a question now of what they were going to, you know, choose to execute that plan. They were a cl- clearly separated, clearly separated from the pack, really of anybody we've ever seen in the in the history of the NFL in terms of decision making. Yeah, and I've given this example before. If I can, I, I've got two vodka bottles, right? And I can guarantee you, one of these bottles is thirty to forty percent full of vodka. The other bottle is ten to ninety percent full of vodka. That Doug Peterson is most likely uh, apt to take a chance on the one that's 10 to 90% full. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, he's looking at expected value. I mean, he's saying, I'm going to make a decision in the context of winning the game, not in maximizing points on a specific drive, not in giving me necessarily the highest problem. He he accepts the fact that there are decisions that you are a favorite to fail on, Mm. but when they succeed, they disproportionately affect your win probability. So those can still... To, to your vodka bottle example, you know, you can increase the variance, but if your expected value goes up, he's not necessarily afraid of making those kinds of choices and, and being willing to accept the downside when they don't work, which you have to accept that that's just, that's just part of the reality. Absolutely. In terms of where teams leak game-winning chance, according to your model, I've heard you say before that a lack of aggressiveness or moving the offense with a set of uh, uh, purpose uh, maybe they, they have a lack of pace in the first half is one area where teams can get better. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, just having an understanding of what your win probability is in different situations. I think sometimes teams don't fully appreciate how much of a hole they're in based upon the clock and the score and the opponent and how much win probability they've got to make up. And it, and it can be that they, they're not you know, even early in the first half, managing the clock properly and, and fully appreciating how sensitive win probability is to efficient use of the clock, even at that stage of the game. Mm. I think the biggest cost that we routinely see is what I was mentioning a little bit before is this risk aversion bias and focusing on the wrong metric. So not all points are the same. In a game like baseball, you're trying to produce runs. You're trying to keep your opponent from producing runs. And that holds true in most situations. In football, because the scoring is in different increments and because the clock is decaying, the value, the utility, the usefulness of points changes dramatically. So you're not just trying to get points out of a drive. You're trying to improve win probability. And sometimes that can create some very counterintuitive strategies where you get more aggressive because the impact on win probability is favored by the more aggressive action, even though it, it fails in the short term um, a greater percentage of the time. So a, a classic example of that is a team drives the length of the field. They've got a fourth and short, very deep in opposing territory, and they want to get something for their efforts. We marched all the way down the field. Our highest probability of scoring is by kicking the field goal and getting the three points. The part that they're missing, the context that they're losing, is that from a win probability standpoint, factoring in the probability of scoring the touchdown along with the probability that you fail on the fourth down and it results in very poor field position for the opponent, and how does that affect win probability? When you start to look at all those iterations and weigh them properly, which is what our tool can do, 
a lot of those decisions become really, really clear and favor the more aggressive actions. And in fact, it's not even close in a lot of situations. So that one piece of analysis that we do often on key fourth down decisions where we say a more aggressive action may have been worth, you know, several percent in win probability over the conservative action of a field goal or a punt, we can actually go back and readjust the parameters of the model to say, well, let's imagine it was a, you know, you were the worst rushing team in the NFL against the best rushing defense. How would that have affected the decision? Inevitably, that's going to reduce the amount of what we would see as the error for the more conservative action. But if it doesn't change the direction, if it's still, even under those extreme circumstances, still points in the direction of going for it on a fourth down, that's really pretty irrefutable evidence. And that's when in our reports, we'll label something with a high confidence tag. And the average team in the NFL and just high confidence, what we would label as high confidence suboptimal decisions on fourth downs gives up about two thirds of a game a season, which is still really substantial. Yeah. <laughs> so um, speaking on that, uh, Doug Peterson had recently criticized Doug Marone for kneeling uh, before the half in the, in the AFC championship game. And to go along with that, what, what teams or coaches have you found to be the least aggressive that are leaking the most game-winning chance uh, through your work? That's a tough one sometimes to answer because it's a little bit, it can be a little bit opportunistic. So obviously, I know somebody like Peterson was a very high performer. But sometimes, you know, like if, if we look at the total cost of fourth down decisions, Cleveland, for instance, last year didn't look that bad, mm. but there's an opportunistic component to it, which is they're not necessarily taking the, the same exam everybody else is on their decision making because they may have a lot less win probability at stake in a lot of those decisions because they, they're out of the game. Right. You know, there's not a lot of win probability at stake sometimes. So there's a, you could do an analysis of the frequency of errors. And we've, we've thought about grading it in that way, but we do compile overall costs during the season, but it's not, as I said, not always a, a fair reflection of who they are as specific decision makers because of the circumstances that they face game in and game out, different kinds of decisions. Okay. Okay. Um, what about, what about some guys that are typically aggressive regardless of the, of the frequency, because there's, there's Doug Peterson, um, you're probably dealing with Bill Belichick in this area, although Bill, uh, Belichick had some decisions in the AFC Championship game. Um, there were four punts where I thought he could have definitely gone for it. Uh, maybe what the data was showing him was that, you know, we're up against Blake Bortles. Let's trust our defense. But um, as far as coaches being historically aggressive, who are some of the guys that that your model likes? You know, there's, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of parity in the league that there's not, a, you know, the, the, the two names that you mentioned are, are sort of your classic standouts. I mean, Belichick in the AFC championship game, you know, he's been somebody that over the years we've seen as a bit of an outlier mm -hmm. kind of behaves differently, like that famous indie decision some years ago. But talking about the AFC championship game, we had New England giving up about 20% in win probability. And it's, and it's the very decisions that you're referring to. Uh, we thought that was a very, very poorly called game, which they, they managed to win in spite of themselves. I mean, we've certainly seen Sean Payton, you know, in the past uh, exhibit more aggressive tendencies. But, I, you know, it, other than, the, you know, really, I think Peterson was a pretty key standout. Yeah. We haven't, uh, you know, 
Pete Carroll certainly seems to be a little bit more on the innovative side around these kinds of decisions. I think you'll probably see Frank Reich at Indy this year because of his background. I, I'd keep an eye on on his behavior, mm-hmm. but um, we we still you know we we really do see quite a bit of parity across the board. So we know that that you guys have worked with the Eagles. Can you divulge if you're working with any other teams, or is that top secret information? I mean, we have worked. We've had. V- varying levels of engagements with probably 10 different NFL teams. Um, We're in the process right now. We've just released our roster valuation tool, which we're pretty excited about, which is going to have more of a front office application. So we will literally be in front of everybody in the coming weeks and months demonstrating that. So, yeah, we do have some contractual uh, restrictions on on disclosures, but I I would expect that uh, in 2018, 2019, I I would hope we'd be working with about a fourth of the league to to a third. Amazing. I'm glad the Eagles got out in in front of that. Um, Just a couple other areas that I I wanted to touch on that historically I thought teams have not been aggressive enough in that situation. And obviously there are going to be some rule changes with with the kickoff and whatnot, but I've always found that surprise onside kicks their success rate was enough to bite the bullet if you miss one every now and then. And it's something that teams should use more. And uh, two-point conversions as well as something that has doubled in the past, uh, I, I guess, eight years has gone from like 4% uh, frequency to 8% frequency. Are those two things that uh, that game-winning chances being leaked out by teams because they're not utilizing them more? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly you know, underused, the, the onside kick. One of the, with our clients, um, we do produce strategy guides during the, cause they can't live simulate during the game. So one of the strategy guides that we produce is as a function of clock and score difference is the required onside kick recovery rate for it to be a profitable action, profitable, meaning that it boosts your GWC or win probability over a, a conventional kick. There are certainly situations where it's, it's more warranted. The model handles it really well because onside kicks typically, you know, the ball advances 10 to 15 yards and you either get it or you don't. So we, those are very straightforward types of analysis for the model. And we, we do see that they're not used as efficiently as they could be. With the new kickoff rules, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because you can't, ne- you can't load one right. side of the ball as much as you used to. So that's going to be negative on the onside kick for sure. But you know, what do the rule changes mean in terms of touchback rates and how does the new configuration, you know, potentially create opportunities for things like pooch kicks? There's some really interesting dynamics that we're going to be keeping a real close eye on to see how it's going to affect the viability of onside kicking decisions. But Traditionally, we have seen those as as not being used as frequently as they as they could be. And the same thing with um, with two point conversions as well. Yeah, I mean, two point conversions. Um, the the thing that you find there is there are the very obvious situations that folks get right in twos versus ones, and then there are the far more complex ones. And it turns out that there's you know there's absolutely situations that are a bit murkier that folks get wrong and and should go for, you know, two over one. I mean, a classic example is if you are minus 14 and you score a touchdown late in the game, you should go for two first. That one has been, our simulation shows that to be true. Mathematicians have worked that out. But the reality is, is it, it usually only affects like fractions of, of a percent of win probability. It's clearly right, mm. 
but it's not, you know, it pales in comparison to the fourth and short decision when a team conservatively takes the field goal and gives up, you know, 12% in win probability. Gotcha. Okay. But yes, there's, there's certainly a lot of, I mean, we do some pretty sophisticated analysis on two point conversion charts. We've reviewed teams charts and updated them for them. And there, there's certainly a lot of depth to that, but in terms of the equity that, that affects win probability, you just don't see in the in the more complex and difficult choices the kinds of win probability at stake that you do on fourth and shorts. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so Frank, uh, before I let you go, I, I recently spoke with Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders, and uh, obviously I love their work. I utilize their 2018 uh, almanac all the time. I visit their website every day. I think they're putting out great stuff. Can you explain your relationship with, with Football Outsiders there at uh, Edge Analytics? Well, we've been big fans of Aaron for a long time. I think I first talked to him probably a decade ago and, and agree with you. He does great work and hopefully you'll love the, the way the new website looks. Oh, it looks great. So we're really excited for, for Aaron to now be a part of Edge Sports. I think this year, other than sort of updating the website, I mean, Football Outsiders is kind of operating as you know, somewhat business as usual, but we're very excited about ways to integrate his knowledge and the kinds of data and insights that he's capturing into our system and vice versa. So it's just a really good fit for us. He, he shares our, you know, our philosophy and our values and our passion for the space. And I think there's going to be some great ways that we can, you know, sort of build off of each other's experience. And, and we're pretty excited about the B2C space and, and providing more content through Football Outsiders to folks that are in the fantasy realm, the handicapping realm. And just, you know, the sophisticated fans that are craving uh, better and better content. So, um, yeah, it's really good fit for us. I, I asked him if his clone showed up today. So his clone shows up at his doorstep, uh, how he would handle it. Uh, my way of dealing with it is just uh, getting rid of it uh, one way or another. Aaron, on the other hand, showed to be a great human being and, and said that he would uh, welcome his clone. Frank, if your clone shows up right now, sorry if I'm throwing you a curveball. Uh, how are you dealing with that situation? Uh, I'm going to go take a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that, you know, I got good coverage. Um, similar to Aaron, I would welcome it. I mean, we, we've got a lot of great folks that work here at Edge. You know, we're, we had, we're always sort of humbly looking for, you know, folks to come in with new ideas. So we just, you know, we, we welcome... Uh, <laughs> Our clone overlords. <laughs> Excellent. Frank, uh, thank you so much. Um, is there anything you want to plug before uh, before I let you go? Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, we are active on social media. I mean, we're getting more active. So our Twitter is at Edge Sports. Um, so we're always updating, you know, anything we're doing in the media and, and posting interesting articles and, and that type of thing. And certainly, at, you know, if you go to edgefootball.com, there's a lot of information there as well. So, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, with the acquisition of Football Outsiders, you'll you'll be seeing a lot of new content and design around their site in, in the near future as well. He is Frank Frigo from Edge Analytics. Thank you again for joining us, Frank. Thank you. Appreciate it. So thank you for tuning in to what I hope was a very enlightening conversation with Frank Frigo from Edge Analytics. Give them a follow. Follow what they're doing because they are doing some revolutionary stuff in, in the game. It's, it's fantastic stuff. And as always, thank you for listening to Bleeding Green Nation. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Five stars, steal your girlfriend's phone. Give us five stars on that account too. Whatever you got to do, it really helps the show and it helps us bring this content to you. So thank you again. And remember, we all we got, 
we all we need. Fly Eagles fly. Hey guys, this is John Stolnes from The Good Fight and the Phillies podcast, Hitting Season, where I talk to Phillies beat writers, broadcasters, and fellow Good Fight bloggers, as well as national baseball writers, and the occasional interview with Matt Klintak and Gabe Kapler. Also, you'll get continued success, a Phil's podcast hosted by Justin Clue and Liz Rocher covering all things Phillies, and The Dirty Inning, a hilarious podcast hosted by Justin and Trevor Strunk, looking at the very worst innings in Phillies history. Make sure you are subscribed to The Good Fight podcast feed support for this podcast comes from smart water want to get a little more from every sip smart water alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure it's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings elevate how you hydrate and pick up a smart water alkaline today to learn more visit drinksmartwater.com right now businesses are facing tough choices do you cut costs or drive growth Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.